Hi, welcome back to Mountain Murders. Hey, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you tonight? You had a good week, good weekend? Yeah, great time. Ready to get started with a brand new episode? I am. Yeah, so we had a lot of great feedback with our Peter London um, episode, which was kind of like, um, I guess we were on hiatus, came back, so it was kind of like our first big episode back. Yeah, and that was a fan recommendation, and um, thank her, because it was a really great story. Yeah, and so we've got a lot of new fans, and we've had some really good feedback. Um, folks saying that they've binge-listened binge to the entire podcast so far. They love it. They can't put it down. It's great. They can't wait for the next episode. We are so happy to hear that. Yeah, that means a lot to us. It really does, especially, you know, we're podcast fans, and so having people who listen and enjoy what we're putting out is great. Yeah, to hear someone say they binge listened all in a day or two, um, yeah, that's pretty exciting to me because that's what I do when I find one I love. And if you're a fan and you love the show, of course, you can always support us um, with Patreon, becoming a patron. And we had a brand new patron this week, so shout out to Casey Barton. Thanks for uh, joining us here and being a patron and uh, giving us your hard-earned money because, of course, with support from uh, our fans, we're able to upgrade equipment, you know, hosting, domains, all that stuff that goes into uh, putting together a podcast. Yeah, thanks, Casey. Yeah, so thank you, Casey Barton. And if you're interested in becoming a patron, all you have to do is find Mountain Murders on Patreon. We have some very affordable levels there. A couple of bucks a month, you can support the show. Yeah, and we're coming up with new ideas every day on uh, extra bonus content. We're just going to get it chocked full of all you can stand of different things. Us running our mouth. Yeah, and that's the thing with Patreon. Uh, Patreon, if you become a patron, is that when we post those bonus episodes, you actually get a first access to that before everybody else. So, again, if you can't get enough of this Mountain Murders True Crime podcast, then you can definitely sign up there. So, you ready to get started with this crazy story? I am. Very, very excited to hear about this one because I didn't know much about it. Yeah, well, I've actually known about this case for probably like 20 years or so. My best friend, her name is Julie. Um, we heard about this case, gosh, probably back when we were in college at Western Carolina University. And we researched it and we were really fascinated with it. And we've even heard some like paranormal types of stories that kind of go along with this case. But that's, a, of course, maybe for a bonus episode or something. Uh, yeah, we have to bring that up in our Mountain Murders Afterthoughts. Exactly. Huh. But this uh, case has sprung, um, you know, a murder ballad. Uh, there's been documentaries and several books written about this case. And it takes place here in the mountains of North Carolina. And this is sort of in the northwestern part of the state. Um, Walnut Grove, North Carolina, which is in Stokes County, I guess kind of between like Winston-Salem, Greensboro. Yeah, I guess it would be uh, east of us a little bit. And then um, north of the Greensboro, Winston-Salem area. Yeah, but back, still a mountain murder. Back in the mountains. They have some very beautiful places there. And a lot of people have kind of dubbed this story as the Christmas tragedy. Are you ready to get started, Dylan? Yeah, let's do it. So on December 25th, 1929, so we're taking it uh, back a few decades. What is that, almost 100 years or so? Yeah, we're getting in the way back machine. The way back machine. So 17-year-old Marie Lawson woke up early to bake a Christmas cake for her family. And she knew that the two layers were going to take some time to bake. 
cool, frost, all of that uh, before the holiday festivities were to happen later in the day. Now, you got to keep in mind this is 1929, and you pointed out she was probably baking on a wood stove. Yeah, so she's got a, she got a lot to get going before she can even bake the cake. Exactly. So gets up early to start this Christmas cake. So sometime later on in the morning after, you know, the family's been up, Marie's baking this cake. I'm sure the smell of the cake was kind of filling the house, um, you know, making people rise and shine. Um, her two younger siblings, um, Carrie and Mabel, departed the property to go visit their aunt and uncle because, of course, it was Christmas morning. So they were going to walk over to relatives' house, wish them a Merry Christmas, and then come back and probably have a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, probably looking forward to that cake. Well, lurking in the tobacco barn on the property, a killer laid in wait. And the Lawson family murders is a tragedy that has haunted a community for 90 years. So let's get started with this. Charlie Lawson, also known as Charles Davis Lawson, was born May 10th, 1886. So now he's going to be the patriarch of this family. Um, he was born in Lawsonville, North Carolina, to William George Augustus Lawson and Nancy Hill Lawson. And in 1911, he married Fanny Manring. What a name. You reckon his people founded Lawsonville? I mean, probably. Probably connected to the people that founded it, at least, huh? Well, you know, with these small mountain towns, they're often named after the folks who settle in those towns right. kind of to begin with. And, um, yeah, that's just sort of the way of the, the woods here. So Charlie marries Fanny, and he's a sharecropper. So he's working as a sharecropper, and he worked uh, as a tobacco tenant farmer for you know quite a few years before eventually saving enough money to buy his own farm. And he, he ended up moving from Lawsonville to this Walnut Grove area. Um, he followed his siblings. I guess, he, you know, the kids had an aunt and uncle lived in that area. I think it was Charlie's brother that kind of first moved there. And Charlie followed suit, was working, saving money, eventually bought this farm on Brook Cove Road. And that was in 1927. So two years before the murder took place, the family bought the farm and uh, were able to, you know, kind of have a piece of the American dream, if you will. Yeah, some upward mobility there. And it uh, sounds like uh, Mr. Lawson is a hard worker and Definitely. just trying to trying to get more more for his family and get them more stable. Yeah. Well, you know, Charlie and Fanny had eight kids which I guess at that time was pretty common to have a large family. And they had a couple of children who um, perished at birth or, you know, you know, didn't make it through infancy, which... So they could have had more than eight. Yeah. So they had a couple of kids who died in birth or died shortly after birth in the infancy, as I mentioned. So uh, they potentially could have had more than the eight kids. But in 1929, they had the children. Marie, she was the oldest. She was 17. They had a son, Arthur. He was 16. Then, as I mentioned before, Carrie, um, younger daughter, uh, she's 12. Maybelle is 7, and a son named James, who was 4. Raymond, who was 2 years old, and then a 4-month-old baby girl named Mary Lou. And they lived a very, you know, typical life for a rural family um, during the pre-Depression era. They were hardworking, you know, probably from sunrise till sundown, working that farm. Everybody had to chip in, pitch in, help out. But, you know, they were still pretty poor for the time. Uh, but most farmers back then were kind of just poor dirt farmers kind of scraping by, especially those sharecroppers, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, sharecroppers, you got, you're paying the rent to the, you know, basically landlord of the land, likely your home, all that tied. Might even be borrowing against the company store to get through the next month before you get paid again. So with that being said, uh, you know, hardworking, but probably didn't have a ton of money. Um, people thought it was kind of unusual when Charlie Lawson took his family to town days before Christmas. He lavished them with brand new clothes and they had a family portrait taken, which was a splurge at the time and uncommon and was kind of seen as a luxury. Times have changed. (laughs) Definitely. Um, So the bloody crime began on Christmas afternoon. As I mentioned, Carrie and Maybelle were going to visit an aunt and uncle. And uh, while they were making plans to head out, Charlie Lawson was waiting in the barn. The father, patriarch of the family. And when they drew closer, he shot both of his daughters with a shotgun. My God. He then bludgeoned both girls, presumably to, you know, ensure that they were both dead. And then he dragged them into the tobacco barn to hide the bodies. So you would think the shotgun, shooting small girls with a shotgun, was going to kill them. Well, I guess just to be sure, you know, he uh, he, he decided to um, beat them as so well. So it seems he's out of his mind at this point. Well, before this time... Um, that morning earlier, Marie's baking the cake. Everybody's kind of up and at him. Charlie had sent his oldest son, Arthur, the 16-year-old, into town on an errand. And some folks have said that errand was actually to go to the general store in town to pick up some ammunition because they were going to go rabbit hunting, which uh, was actually, I guess, something that a lot of families did on Christmas Day. Family tradition. It was kind of a thing to go rabbit hunting back then on Christmas Day. So Arthur had gone into town on an errand, and some people have speculated that maybe Charlie spared his son because he knew that Arthur was the one who might physically overpower him during the murders. Because he's 16, he's a farm boy, you know, he's probably got, you know, a pretty strong physique working on that farm. So he was probably the only one that really could have overpowered his father. Other people have speculated maybe he spared his son so that the family name could continue. Yeah, but, but I mean, he's killing his whole family, so I'm not sure that's top of his... Of course, the son would carry the name on, but well, still. End of, well, you just that was a spoiler alert, Dylan. Well, at the end of the day, none of us really know, you know, what Charlie was thinking at the time. But once he had hid the bodies of the two younger girls in the barn, he walked back to the house. Now, Fanny, his wife, was on the porch. And I'm not sure if she was on the porch, like, doing some work, perhaps, or if she was just kind of out there you know, enjoying the sunny day or something. I'm not really sure. But Charlie walked up, shot Fanny, then went inside the house to track down his four other children. So once inside the house, he shot 17-year-old Marie, then his two sons, James, the four-year-old, and Raymond, the two-year-old, before beating to death his four-month-old baby daughter, Mary Lou. My God. Now, could you imagine? Because I'm sure there's going to be screams or what are you doing or, you know, a commotion. So all these other children, as he's coming through, systematically destroying his whole, killing his whole family. The terror all the way down to a four month old baby. Yeah. That's that's I've just never heard anything quite like that. And on Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. Which is supposed to be, you know, a uh, happy holiday. Wow. For family and that kind of thing. 
So after murdering most of his family, of course, save for Arthur, the older boy, Charlie then carefully positioned the bodies. He took the time to fold the arms neatly across the chest. And some um, have described it almost as like how a body would be positioned like lying in a casket. So he positioned the bodies and he even placed pillows under their heads. And he even took time with the two girls out in the tobacco barn to find a, a rock to place under their heads as if it were a pillow. That's strange. So he's taking a lot of care and attention to these bodies. Then Charlie disappeared into the woods and, of course, he took a shotgun with him. So after several hours out in the woods, Charlie took his own life. And by this time, neighbors had gathered at the house and discovered that the family was dead. And the final gunshot was heard by the people who had started to, you know, mill around the property, uh, finding these bodies. Now, do you do you think he was doing that positioning and the pillows all in a, in an act of remorse or wanting them to be comfortable? Because, you know, a lot of times if they find a body that's been covered with a sheet or anything that at hand, a lot of times that makes invest, investigators think um, someone knew this person because they can't stand to see, you know, what's happened. Well, I mean, them. it almost sounds like here's a, a family man. He's got this family and he loves and cares for them. He murders them, but he still has enough affection that he, like, wants them to be comfortable. Right. You know, it almost makes me think of the book In Cold Blood, the Truman Capote book. Um, when the Clutter family is murdered, someone, you know, one of the killers takes the time to go and put pillows under their heads and make sure that they seem comfortable. Yeah. Which is just an odd kind of detail. But Charlie's body was discovered um, by a tree in the woods, and he had these letters that were addressed to his parents in his pants pocket, but they were unfinished, and they only contained a couple of sentences that didn't really make sense. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But it appeared as though he had spent some time in the woods pacing a circle around this tree. Like there was a, a pretty decent little like dirt trail path kind of encircling that tree where he had, you know, paced around. So it's almost like he paced around what, what you know, like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Or maybe pacing around trying to figure out like if he wanted to take his own life. Yeah, or maybe he had paced around that tree, you know, previous couple of days in the same spot, thinking about what he was going to do. That's true. I hadn't thought about that angle, Dylan, but that's a good point. But no one seemed to know why Charlie Lawson suddenly snapped and killed his family. And, of course, at this time, uh, motives, speculations, rumors, of course, begin to fly. And so let's break down a couple of the rumors that were circulating. Um... One talk was that uh, months before the murders, Charlie had been kicked in the head by a farm animal, which had caused a head injury. And that, you know, some people said, oh, well, he was injured by this farm animal. It kicked him. I think it might have been a horse. And he just wasn't quite right after that. that. You know, his personality changed. She just seemed different. Right. You know, that kind of thing. But. Later on, there was an autopsy performed, and it showed no signs of a brain injury or brain damage that could have been caused by, like, a traumatic head injury. Right. And now this is kind of an interesting thing here. So when this crime happened, of course, it was Christmas, and there was a, a young um, medical student in town who was studying at John Hopkins University, you know, 
prestigious school who happened to be in town and assisted with this autopsy. And he even took Charlie's brain in a jar up to John Hopkins University to be studied. Wow, I guess this whole area is like shot in shock. Right. Right. I mean, because here's a family man, hardworking family man. I'm sure everybody knew him. And uh, with all those kids. And uh, oh, yeah, the town, the community was just completely like grief stricken, did not understand what had happened. Even this, it was shocking. Visitor, this if you made will. national news. Yeah, he I was mean, trying this to was just like, wow. He's trying to do something to help give them answers. Seems. Yeah, so uh, later it was noted, um, once the brain was transported up to John Hopkins, you know, to be studied, that Charlie's brain was noted to be relatively small, and there was also a portion at the center of the brain that was seemingly, like, underdeveloped. Um, and it was also, uh, you know, put in this jar, studied, whatever, but now the location of the brain is unknown. So they don't know if, like, once it was studied, if John Hopkins University, like, destroyed it or if it's still someplace on a shelf somewhere in an archive. Who knows? Yeah, it'd be interesting if that brain was still around, what they could do nowadays with imaging and what they've learned about the brain. Exactly. So, again, the autopsy didn't show any signs of any kind of brain injury, that kind of thing. But then again, who knows what science, you know, was like then. I mean, it's, right. it's so far advanced now. Well, other rumors swirled that Charlie Lawson hadn't murdered his family at all, that he had actually witnessed some kind of organized criminal activity and that the family was murdered by some gangsters. Which, I mean, this could have kind of made sense because you have to think about these murders were 1929 and, you know, bootlegging and moonshining was still a thing back then because prohibition wasn't lifted until 1933. Right. So, I mean, you know, it could have been that maybe Charlie had seen something he wasn't supposed to see. Yeah, and that's about in the middle of prohibition there almost, a little bit further along, but it was... A lot of money being generated at that point. It was but a big deal. I think, you know, if you really think about the case and kind of put the pieces together, what is the likelihood that gangsters would have rolled up on this home and murdered this whole family and left behind this one shotgun and Charlie takes that same shotgun and goes out to the woods and shoots himself. And not get the guy who crossed him in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't yeah. really... That could be something like someone trying to save face on his reputation. Maybe. Yeah, or just one of those salacious stories or that just kind of added a little more like pizzazz. Or maybe it was a story that people, it just made them feel better. Like, right. Because it was just too... Because they really couldn't accept what's horrible happened. Horrible to think about this family man... Turning on his entire family and just slaughtering them. Well, years later, a book called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas uh, put forth a brand new theory. And this one's actually pretty interesting. Um, anonymous sources, some friends and relatives, say that Marie Lawson, the 17-year-old daughter, was having an incestuous relationship with her father and became pregnant. Yeah. That is salacious. Well, a 2006 book called The Meaning of Our Tears provided more evidence of this theory, including an interview with Marie's best friend at the time, who revealed that Marie had confided this secret to her just days before the murder. 
However, the autopsy made no mention of Marie's pregnancy. So whether they, you know, knew she was pregnant, maybe just didn't document that on the autopsy. Maybe they thought, well, this is already tragic enough. We're going to save face for this family. You know, we don't need to reveal all the secrets. Or maybe she thought she was pregnant, but she really wasn't. Yeah, or maybe, again, this could have just been a story made up by, you know... That's the, pretty interesting, the though. local gossip. Author felt strongly enough about it to, you know, put yeah. forth a new theory. Put it in two books. Right. Because she wrote the first book, then wrote the second book. And then you've got to think about, as well, if Marie was having some sort of incestuous relationship with her father, was it a consensual relationship, or was she actually, you know, being sexually abused? Right. Right? So I think that's another aspect to the story that kind of makes it a little murky, those details. Well, you know, the Depression was about to hit. I mean, you got to realize this is 1929. The stock market crashed. Um, some folks said that maybe Charlie was having money troubles. Maybe he knew that the stock market crash was, you know, not going to be good and he was having money troubles. And, you know, they say that this winter in 1929 was incredibly brutal winter, lots and lots of snow. So maybe he was just freaking out, like didn't know if he was going to make it. So, yeah, that brings up the idea of uh, when you hear of these cases of fathers, for whatever reason, they can't financial trouble or something's going to happen that's going to affect the whole family. And they kill the whole family and themselves just so it's, you know. Yeah. Right. Just because they can't take care of them. They don't know what's going to happen to them. And there's actually that's like a whole thing that we're going to look more into. Um when these fathers kill their whole family and then themselves, a lot of times it is that. So are you saying that could be a mountain murder's afterthought? That could I be think some that, bonus content? Yes, Ooh. it can be. Well, sadly, the only survivor, Arthur, the 16-year-old, was killed in 1945 when he was only 32 years old in a car accident. And uh, he left behind a wife and four kids. And the eight Lawsons are interned together at the Browder Family um, Cemetery. And they have a tombstone uh, that's kind of shared, you know, big, big tombstone. And the inscription says, not now, but in coming years, it will be a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears and then sometime we'll understand. Wow. Yeah. I'd say the town folk had input on that well now get this so charlie lawson's brother marion lawson um, later opened the house as a museum and offered tours of the crime scene wow yeah now he claims he was raising money for the orphaned son arthur because you know this poor kid's left behind he needs money and this is a weird little fact. So the cake that Marie had baked on Christmas Day was on display, like I guess where she had placed it on the family's table, dining room table or whatever. Right. Um, you know, to have that Christmas Day, she puts the cake on the table. Um, it was um, left there. And people, visitors who were coming through were stealing the raisins off the cake. And so they eventually had to place the cake under a glass yeah. Because people were coming in and, like, picking off the raisins to have, like, a little bit of a souvenir, if you will. So what is that, like, forever cake? 
I mean, it's not molding or anything. I mean, I don't know. I want some of that cake. Well, this is an interesting piece of this as well. So not only was the home opened as like this crime museum, which just was very unusual at the time. I guess we've always had um, dark tourism. That's true. <laughs> very morbid. We've always been fascinated with morbid things. So if you're listening to true crime podcasts and people tell you you're a weirdo and a sicko, well, I guess people have been weird and sick since the beginning of time. Yeah. Because here you go in the 20s. People want to steal raisins off the death cake. <laughs> So freshly escaped from prison, John Dillinger made a trip to the home with his girlfriend and an accomplice when they were on their way to Florida. Mm. And Dillinger even left a note on the door taunting Ariel Lawman. Like, huh. hey, I'm America's Most Wanted, and I was here, and you couldn't catch me kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. I wonder- so it was. It had hit the, the news wires and was like such a big story that even John Dillinger decided to, like, check out this crime house. Oh, wow. And as I mentioned before, 1929, the winter was reportedly tough, lots of snowfall. And they were saying that the snow was so deep um, on this Christmas Day that family, friends, and deputies had to transport the bodies out of the house using bed sheets on some sort of, like, makeshift sled just to get them, like, down to the main road where the hearses were waiting. Wow. Yeah. And Madison's Yelton Funeral Parlor took the family in. I guess the local funeral funeral parlor, parlor I can't talk today, um, was too uh, small to accommodate these, uh, what was that? Eight bodies? Well, nine, I guess. Ten? Oh, yeah, nine. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would have been nine because there were the seven kids and the two parents so it would have been nine bodies and they just didn't have room so they had to transport these bodies to a completely different funeral home and they were saying that on the way um well i guess the day that he you know charlie lawson did this or whatever on the way out to the woods he actually took the two dogs sam and queen with him into the woods but it made no mention of whether or not he you know shot the the dogs as well but, uh, you know, here's this guy, murders his family, and then takes the dogs out to go hang out in the woods and contemplate what he had done. And onlookers and visitors to the house described the cabin as completely blood-soaked, and just the house was in total disarray. Now, did you say the eight of them were buried together? Yes. So they didn't bury Charlie with... Oh, they, his victims. Well, I guess there was, yeah, he was buried with his victims. That's crazy. I don't know why they wouldn't just, I guess maybe they didn't really believe. So maybe that it was nine. Him. Maybe I have my math wrong. I'm a little special when it comes to math. Well, it's okay. Well, but again, it did say they were all together, didn't it? Yeah, they were all buried together. And, you know, if you go online, you can find a lot of images of the cemetery, the plot, the graveside. I actually have some photos that I'll be glad to post on our Patreon page for our patrons to check out. Um, I have some crime scene photos. I have some photos of the actual funeral with all of the caskets lined up. Wow. Some, and they're very, you know, they're very old photos and then a couple of old newspaper clippings as well. So I'll be glad to share that with you guys. Um, but there, like I mentioned, have been a couple of books written about this. Um, there was a murder ballad, um, that's been covered by multiple, uh, performers, including, uh, our local, uh, Doc Watson, amazing, you know, mountain 
folk singer, bluegrass guy. And there's even been a, a couple of documentaries made. And uh, one of the newest documentaries that was actually just released here in the last few years is called Trouble Will Cause. And they derive this name, Trouble Will Cause, from Charlie's suicide note. Now, remember earlier I said, oh, we'll get to that in a minute. He had two notes in his pocket that were addressed to his parents, and none of them made sense. One of the notes said, trouble will cause, that was the only three words, and then another one uh, said something, you know, that was very um, cryptic as well. Wow. So it was like he just didn't even finish his thought before he killed himself. Sounds like Charlie may have had a mental break. You think so? Maybe. I mean, just everything. But at the same time, he wasn't completely out of his mind because he was very methodical, sending the older son away, taking everybody to town. Right. You know, that you have to take a little organization back then. You don't just go next door. You got to go to town and get the new clothes and Well, that's get the, the thing. If you done. really look at the bigger overall picture of the story, I mean, it seems this was very a premeditated murder. Right. Um, as you mentioned, he took the family to town. He bought them new clothes. He had this portrait, knowing this was going to be like the last time that they were all together and wanted to document, this is my family. Right. And the portrait is very eerie. Like, if you check it out, and I'll post that as well on our Patreon page, as well as um, on Facebook, and we'll send out... Um, a picture on our Twitter page. Um, it's like, you know, here's the whole family. And in the picture, Charlie's kind of like looking off, like almost in a corner and not staring directly at the camera. Wow. And has like this really weird smile slash smirk kind of on his face. That's strange. And he just looks very vacant. I don't know. It's a weird picture. So he already Especially had... when you check it out knowing that this... Just a few days later, this whole family is going to be... Like he's already got it on his mind. He knows what he's going to do. Yeah. And, you know, of course, he buys the family new clothes because, hey, this is their funeral attire. He knows that these are the clothes his family is... They're going to wear, you know, when they're buried. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, who knows? There's, uh, as I mentioned, so much speculation. Rumors have swirled over the years. You know, but to this day, no one really knows what was going on in Charlie Lawson's head. I'm sure you could go to that community right now and mention this, and people grew up hearing this story. Yeah, the actually, Lawsons. there is a, um, like a little dry goods kind of general store in town that's still open, and they have a um, museum, like located, I guess, in the upstairs, where if you go to the town to visit, you can go check it out. It's dedicated to the Lawson family. And I guess this was the old funeral home. So, you know, that's kind of a weird piece of history there. But yeah, I mean, this is a story that in this town, I mean, it really shook this community. It's here we are, you know, 90 something years later, still talking about it. Right. And, um, if you, know, you uh, no one knows generate a murder ballad in this area you did something pretty pretty big just like old tom dooley in one of our earlier episodes that's right and if the I meat can, slinger tom dooley oh my god if i can <laughs> if i am able to track it down i'm going to uh maybe play you guys a little clip of 
of the murder ballad here at the end of this podcast. But we appreciate you listening. Of course, you can find Mountain Murders any place you find your podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spricker.com. You can find us all over the place. Yes, we're getting out on even some of the smaller ones, uh, CastBox and uh, a new one, Podbean, and uh, just anywhere. If you can't find us on the player that you happen to be using, uh, just look. Look at them on one more player and you'll likely find us. We appreciate you following us on Facebook. We've got a lot of followers there, a lot of fans there. And, of course, we try to keep you updated with what's going on here with Mountain Murders. You can always join us as a patron on our Patreon. Just look up Mountain Murders. We're on Instagram under Mountain Murders Podcast. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter as well, Mountain Murders. So go uh, make us part of your social media experience. Uh, yes, and if you happen to be on a, using an Apple device to listen, if you can leave us a five-star review, if you so deem it necessary, that really helps get us more exposure. And uh, we're just really excited here at Mount Murders because uh, you guys actually listen. And we're getting some great feedback. And uh, we love it. We're going to keep doing it. We sure do. And, of course, we will have... Um, a bonus content episode, our Mountain Murders Afterthoughts, coming out here in a couple of days. So keep your uh, eyes peeled for that. Yeah, and some of the bonus content is going to be straight up uh, us being stupid. So be forewarned. Well, thanks, Dylan. Yeah. Are you calling me names? Or maybe it's just me being stupid and you making fun of me for being stupid. Yeah, I think I like the sound of that better. But, uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted on the bonus content episodes and Mountain Murders Afterthoughts. And then, of course, we'll be back uh, in a week with a brand new episode, another gruesome, grisly local true crime story. Yes, and uh, thank you very much, guys, and we'll see you again soon.